The Pace Line Podcast is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health conscious people get special life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash paceline to support the show and learn more. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now on to the show. Decker was a great kid doing a good thing for people he cared about. And then things went really, really wrong. How many volts? 2,000? Yes. Went in your... Through my chest, uh, into my left, back out my right. Then I fell onto the cables. One was on my forearm, one was on my chest. How long did that go on? Uh, they say two minutes. Podcast on Two Wheels, tandem episode number two. I'm Eldon Nelson, but the idea behind these tandem episodes is to give your Paceline hosts, like me, a chance to have in-depth conversations with people who love bikes. In this episode, I'm cheating a little bit. Instead of just one conversation, I'm having two, but they're both worth hearing. First, I talk with Decker, a high school senior who loves mountain biking, and he's one of the nicest, most positive kids you will ever meet. He tells the story of an accident that changed how he rides and how he's taken on both physically and mentally this challenge. After that, I chat with Wayne Stetton of Shimano, who's leading the charge in taking their electronic shifting gear, their DI2 stuff, and using it to improve the riding experience for people like Decker. It's two great people, one great topic. Let's get started right now with my conversation with Decker, held recently in his Nike coach's kitchen. And apologies in advance on this one. I had my dog with me, and you will definitely hear him a time or two as he plays, barks at the cat, and takes a prolonged drink of water. It's the Paceline Tandem. Here's Decker. So we just finished doing a ride, finishing in the dark today, Decker. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you've been doing mountain biking uh, with the high school for, what, your fourth year now. You're a senior in high school. Yep. And you've been riding with the Nike team since your freshman year is that right yes and then you had a pretty serious accident yes tell me what happened so i was doing a project in woodworking and it was electrocuting wood i don't even know what that means electrocuting wood it so what it does it makes a tree design in the wood and we were using jumper cables with uh, surge per- surge protector and a microwave transformer uh-huh. that amps up uh, 2,000 volts of electricity. And it went through my right hand, in my left, back out my right. How'd that happen? Uh, the surge protector failed. Mm-hmm. Right when I got the cables, it failed and got me. Then I fell on, it knocked me out, fell onto him. And then 
So how much? How many volts? Two thousand. Yes. Volts went in your through my right hand. Through your right hand. Through my chest uh, into my left, back out my right. Do you remember this at all? No. Okay. I don't. So you were making, uh, I mean, I, I've seen the plaque that you've made yes. for your coaches and you were, and this was just, this was something that you were doing as, you know, something nice to do for, yeah. for other Nike coaches or uh, uh, for the monkeys coaches. I was okay. Cause eating. the name of your team is the flying monkeys, yes. right? Okay. So you're making, you're making a plaque for all the coaches, all the coaches and 2000 volts goes through, through my body through your body then knocks you out then i fell onto the cables one was on my forearm and one was on my chest and kept and kept on shocking so it's com it's continuing to shock. electrocute you yes. as you are now unconscious and laying on it yeah how long did that go on uh they say two minutes holy cow until uh my teacher and somebody found me laying on the ground and they turned, they unplugged it, flipped me over, and about almost a minute, I started breathing again. I was going to ask. I mean, some with that amount of electricity going through you for that amount of time, yeah. I mean, it's astonishing that you're alive. But yeah. and it sounds like you weren't breathing. Yeah, I or, I wasn't until I think about they say about a minute. Then I came back. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I was, my mind was there, but after a little while, I'm starting to feel the pain. And then paramedic, paramedics so, came in. They basically drug, drug me under until I got to US, U, University of Utah. So, the, it. so they gave you some kind of medication to, yes. to help you be unconscious so you wouldn't have to be in pain. Yes. Okay. And I was like that for, I was... Seduced coma. In, and you were in an induced coma? Yes. Okay. For how long? I think for two days. Wow. And what are they doing while you're in that induced coma? Just letting uh, you heal or what? Uh, just, uh, just taking care of the what I had. Mm -hmm. And then they're slowly taking me, taking me off the medication. Then after, while they're doing that, I got combative, and I don't remember that either. Combative? How? Like, have they told you like what you were doing? Uh, they're. I heard. Uh, they told me I was yelling for my teacher, uh -huh. and remembering what happened, and then they at one point they had to. Pull me down for some odd reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, you probably don't need yeah. to be responsible for those actions yeah. during that time. So obviously, how much memory do you have of that time? Any uh, at all? Not much. Okay. Well, not much at all. That may be a good thing, right? You're... I was pretty heavily drugged. Yeah. Because of the amount of pain so, I was in. So... In the end, how long um, how long were you in the hospital? Five weeks. I haven't taken a close look at your hand, but it looks like one of your hands, it looks like it's you have the, your, my, so for your right hand, your, 
my index is completely gone mm -hmm. because of the shock. Right. And to my tips on my ring and my pinky, took it down to the knuckle on both of them, the mm -hmm. first knuckle. And then on my thumb, where this, between the first and second knuckle, it took it down all the way to the bone and just completely burned the lig lig ligaments in my thumb so I can't move the top at all. Yeah. And yeah. they thought they're going to take my index and my thumb at the same time. But they all they did was took my index and left my thumb. So I have something to uh, go off of and grab, uh, grab different things mm -hmm. instead of having nothing there. And were you right-handed or left-handed? Left. Really? Yes. Oh well. So the the hand that is still fully intact was the hand was you led with in the first place. Well, that's I guess. I don't want to say, well, that's lucky, but because this whole thing doesn't smell like luck, but mm -hmm. um, but that it, it is nice that you do uh, the hand that you use most is the it's hand still that is still have full fingers. Yeah, full function there. Do you have do you have full function on your left hand, or is yeah. that okay? Yeah, full. And there's only three scars I have on my left hand. Yeah. How and how about your forearms where you were laying across that cable? Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty it's, scarred. Yeah. But do, uh, do you have good use of that arm, or uh, do you yeah. lose any muscle there? It's it's it it only burnt the skin, mm -hmm. and all it's took the the skin and the fat all the way down to the muscle. Right. So the muscle itself is isn't damaged at all. Okay. It's just the skin. Let's talk a little bit about what happened after because that's, I mean, lots of people get injured, but I think w the way you came back from your injury is what's really remarkable. So you were seriously into mountain biking before this accident. Yes. And I know that um, between your coach or your coaches, you know, they, they started working on a plan while you were still in the hospital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, I, I know that Envy uh, 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 donated a nice set of uh, M5050 wheels. Yeah. And you have a nice specialized uh, Epic hardtail frame. And uh, Shimano uh, set you up with uh, XT brakes and, and DI2 shifting for your 1x11 setup. So... Uh, describe how all of that works together on on the bike itself. It, it to me it works like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> it, it honestly it's really rides fantastic with all of it on the bike, and with the gears, it how I'm I was actually really amazed how quiet it is on, uh -huh. on the trail and uh i was when like when i was watching it watching the when kenny was put kenny and josh putting it on and i was looking at it like how can they get the wire through the frame <laughs> and all this like okay 
Then, like, after I seen it all done, I'm like, oh, that's how, that's how they did it. Yeah. So describe where all of the various uh, components or, or where all of the parts of, on the cockpit are to accommodate your, I mean, your your right hand, you know, obviously has way limited function. The brake and the shifting would have been on my right. Mm -hmm. They just took the gears and the, the brake, they just took it, plopped it over to my left side and... So they're, the brakes are uh, offset just a little bit. Yeah. So I can have my index and my middle finger on two separate brakes. And then the shifter is on the on top of them. Mm-hmm. Two buttons are on top of the, the brakes. Mm-hmm. And then you got the the gearbox where you can see all your gears and mm -hmm. everything then on between the brakes and the the grip is where they put my drop my lever for my dropper and then so you have you have your dropper post you have your front and your rear, rear. braking which are right by each other and then you have my just you, the, you have the gear shifting which is just to, uh, a left and right button, yeah. which is essentially just mounted right by your uh, thumb, but right by your thumb. You you're, you've gotten to the point where your shift, where you're able to shift pretty intuitively. The braking, you're you're getting good at. I, I I saw you, and I, if I had not known about the accident you had, I would never have taken a second look at you riding yeah. today. I would have just thought, hey, you know, guy on a nice bike, uh, <laughs> on a nice ride. Yeah. But um, the first, the within the first couple of rides, you you've discovered that you needed to make a an adjustment to the way your brake levers were. Tell me about what happened there. Um, on one of the fingers we did on. Bearclaw, I had to figure out which, uh, how to pro uh, approach the the steps coming down, and then when I got to the middle, uh, let the middle finger the finger, mm -hmm. the I slowed down enough to actually get control of the bike and where I land. Yeah. And to process everything, like, okay, I need to go this way, then center myself onto the drop. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I'm perfectly fine after after that. Yeah. Then I usually pick a spot to actually stop and wait for everybody else. <laughs> And so you, so during one of your first rides, you had a, after, uh, getting this set up, you took a, an uphill endo. Tell me how that happened. So I was going up a step and was going past someone and I see him going to the right, right when I lifted, I hit both brakes mm -hmm. somehow. And then bounce my front tire off the step, 
causing me to go, to go over the handlebars and causing me to slam my oh, my forearm <laughs> into the rock into the rock. Then from there I got got my bike, kept going. And on the way back my elbow was starting from from fully full extension starting to slowly come in. And then time time I got to my truck, it was fu- almost fully locked. I can't, can't extend it. Oh no! Then I got to my house, and then it was throbbing like crazy, and it felt like uh, a wasp st- uh, sting. Uh huh. But after like three days, it's starting that throbbing, starting to go away, and after second week, it's my arm starting to slowly go back to the full full reach. <laughs> then after I my elbow started popped popping. <laughs> then after the fourth week it was fine. You haven't had things super easy, have you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet you st- you're still out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, um you some of some of the listeners here might not know necessarily where you live. You're in St. George, Utah. Mm-hmm. And during this time of year, you're out there riding how many days a week? About three to four times three to a four week. T- and what are the temperatures you're usually riding in? Um, usually a hundred, uh, about in 90s to 102. 9202. And my understanding is that when they cancel practice because of the extreme heat, that you just come out on your own. Yeah. So <laughs> you, uh, you're obviously real committed to writing. What is it about writing that has, I mean, that you've come through so much it, and still keep doing it? it? It just takes me in different time in seeing seeing different rocks or different animals you haven't seen mm-hmm. and and just getting myself back in shape and because because of uh of of spending five weeks in the hospital i lost a lot of muscle mass and sure and after i believe i told myself i when I get out and get everything healed, get back on the bike and get myself back in shape, just enough to uh, actually race. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who are listening, you know, have bad days on the bike, but I don't think there are many people who have had, who've gone through as much as you have to stay on the bike. Um, what would be, what would be your advice to people who have been injured or find themselves having a rough time, uh, you know, due to an injury? Uh, it, it all depends on your mindset, where you're at and, uh, you, if you're like really injured that to a point you think you can't do things you can that you're used to doing, mm-hmm. but you still can just with like different uh, things. Yeah. And with biking, I 
keep telling myself I have to relearn how to go around corners and go down south with my right hand. Yeah. And if I go over handlebars, I stop, regroup, look what I I I messed up on, and probably next day or or almost a week after, do that same thing again, but try not to go over the handlebars <laughs> or get a bent rim or a flat tire. Sure. At the same time, and if if like there's hills that I think I could do mm-hmm. or couldn't. Yeah. I stop and look at it like, okay, I got to figure out what side and what uh, trail I should take. Then get any good gear to just get up it. Yeah. And there's days that my legs and my lungs aren't uh, uh, working right. Right. And there's days that I feel like crap. <laughs> and there's days that I feel really good and keeping the same speed as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I had yesterday and Sunday, I had not very good days. <laughs> uh, yesterday, I, I went over my handlebar, uh, not over. I just, my the dirt caught my front tire caused me to uh, go on my side and got my elbow and my shoulder all scraped up. <laughs> but I still got back on and kept riding. Yeah, that seems to be sort of the theme to your <laughs> to your whole life is you get back up and keep you know, yeah. keep riding. Yeah, and I think that's actually really I mean, that's incredible guidance to anyone mm-hmm. that hey, you don't see you don't see an injury or a crash or anything as anything more than a new lesson and a way ends like an objective to figure out. I mean, yeah. So, okay. So you're missing fingers on your hand. Okay. So let's figure out how to ride without them. A way to figure out Mm -hmm. what I need to do differently. You have an endo. You figure out what happened what, yeah and, and what i did and figure out what you did that's i mean and really it's just breaking everything down into little things to, to the basic then build back up build back up that's awesome that's i mean and that's really what it is don't see it as a, a huge obstacle just a little thing and figure out how to handle it decker it has been an amazing time talking with you uh congratulations and good luck in your race this Thank you. this uh weekend Uh, I'll be looking forward to seeing how you do in this race and in the ones to come. That's Decker of St. George, Utah, an inspiring kid who has taken a tough situation and just sees it as an interesting puzzle. He's someone to look up to without question. Next, I'm talking with Wayne Stetna, who has been with Shimano for decades in a number of roles. Right now, one of the things he's doing is finding ways to take their DI2 electronic shifting and using it to help people get the very most out of their rides. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're a cyclist. And because you're a cyclist, you can save up to 25.5% on your life insurance by purchasing it through Health IQ. In addition to all the usual information you give for insurance, such as age, gender, height, weight, and nicotine use, 
The amount of writing you do each week is considered, and you can take quizzes that may reduce your payments further. It turns out that knowing what it takes to be fit has its own value. Health IQ knows that people who ride have an 18% lower risk of heart disease, a 28% lower risk of overall mortality, and a 45% lower risk of cancer. So drop by healthiq.com forward slash paceline podcast to get your free no obligation quote. Wayne, welcome to the Paceline. Tell me a little bit about your day job at Shimano and how you got into helping Ride to Recovery. Well, I could talk about that question for hours, <laughs> just that question. Um, I've been with Shimano now for 32 years. I joined Shimano after a very successful road bike racing career. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I worked my way up through Shimano. At one point, I was the vice president of uh, North American Operations, and Kozo Shimano gave me the opportunity to go back into product development and marketing, uh, doing promotional events for Shimano, uh, whether it was um, uh, trade shows, which I would do anyway, but uh, dealer introductions, uh, product introductions, customer product introductions, magazine uh, launches, and lots and lots of test riding. Yeah. So one of the key things that I do now is I test all of our products before we give prototypes to the pro teams to race to make sure that they're good. When I was involved originally with DI2 development, I was looking at it from my perspective as a racer and I'd had a running feud with the engineers for several years that it was going to be a big waste of time because it would be heavier and it would be you know issues with uh, water sealing and everything else and then I rode the first prototype in December of 2003 and it was it was mind-blowing the potential and how good it was for the shifting and uh, the way the system worked. And so we started testing in Belgium and Holland on the cobblestones um, that spring with uh, some of the Rabobank riders and went through several generations. I was involved then, I probably had 50,000 test miles by the time we finally launched a version in 2008. And I had no idea what it could mean to somebody who was missing a hand or had issues pushing a normal shift lever, a mechanical lever, to be able to put everything on one side and to be Mm -hmm. able to customize it. And so as significant as it was for a racing advantage, it meant everything to these riders, these veterans that um, had amputations and um, various uh, injuries for motor control that they were suddenly able to operate a derailleur bike again. And that really opened things up because if you're on a single speed. Um, And so then we started doing... um, 
more and more of the not only the upright bikes but the uh, the recumbents and even the hand cycles with electronic shifting um, and the bikes that uh, the ride to recovery people have been able to design have been nothing short of remarkable tell me a little bit about some of them um, one of the guys, uh, Delvin, who was, uh, we have one of the vans, is named for him, and it's a, um, he was a quad amputee. He was mm. missing, um, he had both his legs amputated and one of his hands and, uh, and then one of his arms, and he was actually able to ride an upright bike with uh, he has an incredible athletic ability and balance, um, and he can do, once he gets started, he can do 40, 50-mile rides um, with no assistance. Um, set, up a pad, set up a pad to push that was connected to the front and rear hydraulic uh, disc brakes on a flat bar, and then uh, pad different pads that he could push to select gears. And at first, he needed to have, um, when, we, when we did that, we didn't have the synchro shift where he could do everything off of mm. one button, including the front shifting. Now we could build an even better bike for him. Yeah, well, what was really interesting was that all that experience allowed me to advise a group of guys uh, that were legends of... Uh, motorcycle and motocross racing that just competed in ram on a four-man team two of them on uh mm -hmm. on uh, recumbent hand cycles and uh two of them on upright bikes they were made by the um the shop that dan gurney f uh, founded all american racing and they were carbon fiber special custom bikes that uh cost uh, developmental costs were about two hundred thousand dollars a piece so all the experience that I'd had advising our injured veterans just transferred directly because cycling is such a great rehab activity for and for health and fitness. You know, you don't have to be in the military to benefit from cycling. And that's one of the reasons that Ride to Recovery um, has branched out to all of the first responders that get injured in the line of duty, including people from 9-11, uh, you know, firefighters and paramedics there, and, and uh, but anybody, police officers, um, they can all gain the same type of benefits from uh, cycling rehabilitation. And so what was special was that the electronic shifting with DI2 opened up possibilities for these people to ride enjoyably over fairly hilly terrain. And yet the cycling turns out to be just an incredible rehab opportunity for any type of a traumatic brain injury or PTSD that uh, you get the endorphins going and you exercise for hours at a time but there seems to be something special about cycling that's related to the coordination and the complex processing that has to happen. There's so much going on uh, with that. I was recently, uh, when I was out in Colorado for the Colorado Classic, 
I attended uh, Davis Finney Foundation Fondo. Uh, Davis has Parkinson's, and uh, mm-hmm. I've known him since he first started racing as a junior. Um, that uh, they now have scientific proof that the cycling activity at low intensity, but um, like a 90 RPM cadence, regenerates brain cells in the part of the brain that is affected by the lack of dopamine that is what causes all the problems for um, for Parkinson's. And so they had a lot of anecdotal evidence that people were um, able to reduce their medication dramatically over long periods of time uh, and not and not have uh, a uh, not degenerate as much uh, as a normal progression of disease as uh, most people were seeing it. And now they have the proof as to why. So we'd always been told, you know, by science and medicine that uh, you have a certain number of brain cells and they die off and that's it. And it turns out that that's not necessarily the case. So now if they can study how to regenerate those, um, you know, that could be good. And it all ties together back to cycling that uh, this Fondo I rode in Copper Mountain went over three passes. It went over Fremont Pass, Tennessee Pass, and then Vail Pass out of Vail going back to Copper Mountain, which is just mm-hmm. a brutally hard climb. And Davis rode it on an electric assist bike. And so the pedal-assisted bikes allow a Parkinson's patient to be able to ride at a low intensity and not get so exhausted that they can't get home, but still get the cycling benefit. There's no possible way he could go over Vail Pass right now on a bike, uh, no matter how light it was. But he pointed out to me, and of course, it's set up with DI2, electronic shifting, and everything runs off the same battery. And so it all integrates together, and this allows it, you know, an electronic bike with electronic shifting becomes an even greater therapeutic tool for all different types of conditions because now you can you aren't restricted where you have to go where it's flat. Yeah, you can ride anywhere. You can go anywhere a bike can go, but the extra weight of the battery and the motor being down low provided greatly needed extra stability. So these Mm -hmm. bikes are easier to ride for people that aren't skilled cyclists from just from the point of view of balance and stability, which again, the Parkinson's it's, it's perfect for that. And they're going to be doing a very aggressive push. So right now there's been a big debate about how this is cheating or it's not a bicycle. But if you limit it to, say, 20 miles an hour, then you're definitely within what bicycles can ride on a bike path. And then, you know, you're not going to have the power to go faster than where the governor is because otherwise you've got a really heavy bike, but you can run it on a low boost. It'll do four or five hours at, if you're still putting some force in, and that's the key is not having a throttle-type bike, but a pedal bike that f- pedals just like a normal bike, and then it 
um, it just makes you feel like you're on a featherweight bike and you're super fit and maybe you have a this big tailwind all the time. And one of the things that really seems to make DI2 in particular really usable for people who have different kinds of physical challenges, whether it's missing a hand or whether it's the inability to use your hands normally, is there's a, a real hackability, I guess you could say, to DI2 that uh, there are a lot of ways you can uh, adjust what the trigger mechanism is. Where can people learn, you know, if they have if they have some some reason that they need to change how uh, you know what the mechanism is for shifting, how they can do that? I'm trying to think off the top of my head because I've got people here that uh, that's all they do, and so I don't <laughs> spend as much time going to the websites, but. Um, we have an e-tube project. So the wiring mm -hmm. is called e-tube. That's e-tube. And if you Google yeah. that, then you'll find the website that that is open. That you know you don't have to be a dealer to get in to to read about that and to see. And the initial systems that we did were not hackable, although not intended right. to be. And some very, very clever people quickly figured out how to do that. And when we went to the second generation, which was the Ultegra, and we did the coaxial cables, which was a power line communication, it was designed to be programmable from the beginning, and that was the goal. And so our focus since that time has been on more and more customization. So now it's possible to tell any button on either shifter to do any operation. For people that had any type of a physical impairment, or even people with smaller hands or less grip strength, I can shift a mechanical front as well as a DI2 front. But for our women, the top women racers in the world, they just said, no, I'm doing electronic. Yeah. Forget mechanical. It's not, for me, it doesn't come close. And, and so it all came down to the size of your hand and your grip strength to, to operate it that uh, mechanical can only do so much. At the time, of course, you had no idea what it could mean for people with amputations or who uh, or who have other reasons that sh uh, shifting with the mechanical lever. No, so they started coming back to me, and the mechanic yeah. was rigging up the first one that wasn't that hackable, and you couldn't reprogram it. And they were mounting the second shift lever or the remote buttons on the uh, on all on one side, and then running all the wiring over to that side, and it's like. I was like, oh, duh, of course it's going to work great for them. So, you know, the, the, it was the r to mechanics that took it on their own to, they instantly saw that that would be a change that, uh, you know, once we, once we went there, you, you just can't go back. And that is one of the things, uh, I think that people, everybody wants a wireless system. And it's a little bit funny because when you talk to the military, which is right to recovery, they're laughing. It's like, yeah, wireless is real convenient, but 
for all mission system, all, all mission critical systems in the military, always hardwired. And, and yet, you know, we've seen that it's not a problem for dropping signals, and they work really, really well. There's an incredible amount of development that needs to go into wireless, but one thing we found is that for the technology we wanted to pursue for customization, that the wired systems were made it much easier for us to address that, to be able to spend all our developmental time on tunability of the system rather than just to make it function wirelessly. So, you know, there, there are decisions there, and uh, it is nice when you, you know, if you can simplify the setup, but that's a one-time thing the first time you build a bike, and then it's not that relevant going forward. But, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what our competitors do in the future because um, that's, what, that's one thing I enjoy about this industry and making better bike components is that it's a competition just as much as the racing was, that uh, you have to know everything your competitors are doing and you have to test their products thoroughly and evaluate all the strengths and weaknesses and because every decision, every engineering decision you make is a trade-off of um, convenience and your technical capability of the time and the cost that it's going to be uh, and then how right. your end users are going to be served based on uh, where you already are in the market. One last thing I wanted to ask you is if, if there was one person or one adaptation that you've made that you're most proud of uh, with, uh, with DI2, with Ride to Recovery, what would you say it is? You know, if I had to pick just one adaptation, because there have been so many lives that have really been changed through cycling uh, with that program, I would have to pick the one I would mentioned earlier with Delvin, because I have to believe he is the first quad amputee to ever ride an upright bike. And he was able to ride 50 and 60 mile days with no pushing assistance and uh, in a group. And that's just remarkable that you could build a bike that somebody could safely operate the brakes and the derailleurs well enough that, uh, he, could, that he could function like that. And so the whole thing for Ride to Recovery, for me, it, I, I raced for 50 years. And I retired four years ago, and I just do fondos, and I try to ride with my famous nephew Peter or any of the pros and still keep up on a 100-mile training ride as best I can or do some of the, you know, the more challenging fondos and not get too far behind. Um, I'm not going to – I'm just trying to maintain fitness as long as possible and, uh, you know – pretend that I'm not really getting as old as I am. <laughs> I'm not getting better for sure, but this is an opportunity for me to give back to cycling and really make a difference in people's lives. And when families come back to you after 
their wife or their husband or the father comes home and and their partner or their children are saying, you know, thanks for giving them, for bringing them back because, you know, they, they came back physically from, from the war, but they didn't ever come back mentally, and now they're actually back mentally. That, that really um, makes you feel that uh, you've made a contribution that matters. That's Wayne Stetina, and big thanks to both him and Decker for talking with me on The Pace Line. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating or a review. I've got more long-form interviews with amazing people who love bikes coming up soon. So keep watching and listening for new tandem episodes of The Pace Line, as well as our weekly show. I'm Fatty. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 